0: Welcome back to Growth Minds, guys. We are here with Scott Belsky. Finally, get to talk to you. No, i excited. Very excited thanks to get this me. going. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Um, so I'm super excited to talk to you about the messy middle. I was actually just watching, uh, just like studying for a little bit for this interview. I was watching, re-watching, actually, Steve Aoki's documentary on, I think it's like, I'll sleep when I'm dead. <laughs> and... You know, you when you follow him on like Instagram and all that stuff, you you kind of you see the glamour and and the Instagram filtered shots of like how famous he is and all the shows that he's doing and the and the documentary is it, you you kind of resemble you really relate to what he's going through, the doubts that he has at two a.m. the you know the the fact that he had to prove something to his dad, and I think the the messy middle is certainly such a needed. Uh, book but also transfer of knowledge for a lot of people out there because people don't really understand what it's like everything in between from you know it's not just the ending right
1: i mean we're obsessed with starts and finishes they are uh they're kind of uh, very catchy and romanticized um we love the starts because they You know, or there are the moments when everyone puts everything on the line, quits their job, you know, takes a really big risk and a position within the company they never thought they were qualified for, whatever else. And then we love chronicling ends because there are just moments in time. It sums up everything that happened in between, whether it's a IPO, an acquisition, or a bankruptcy, press love covering the ends and the starts. And then of course everything in the middle is generalized and, um, and summarized with sound bites. And, uh, and I think that there's a, a lot to be learned from how you manage that volatility. I mean, the, the lows and the highs, right? We're not our best selves at either point. We're not our best selves at the lows. Cause we make decisions out of fear. We're not our best selves at the highs because we falsely attribute the things that we did to the things that worked and mm. sort of falsely apply a narrative to why things are working, which can also be bad. And so you know whether you're at the lows, the highs, the, the frequencies of this volatility, you gotta you gotta you know apply a, a different mindset to how to how to endure and optimize.
0: Gotcha. And this the, the book The Messy Middle is really a framework of it's broken down into three major yep. steps. It's uh well not maybe steps but phases I guess which yep. is endure, optimize, and then the final the mile. Word. The final mile. Yep. Um which part do you think of those three phases, do you think is the hardest part for most entrepreneurs or someone that's starting out?
1: Yeah, I think that. Well, they're all they're are all they are they are all challenging in their own part. I mean, obviously, endure is probably the part that is the most emotionally, and psychologically, and physically toiling because this is really enduring those low points where everyone doubts you, um, you start to doubt yourself, where you don't see any end in sight. Where the high that accompanied the start has completely subsided, and now you're just sort of, you know, navigating amidst uncertainty, anonymity, ambiguity, and anxiety, mm-hmm. and it's extraordinarily difficult to keep yourself engaged, to keep your team engaged, and to somehow find your way to, you know, to an outcome. Um, so I would say that's probably the part that no one likes to talk about because. It's just horrible.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's boring to talk about as well because it's the day-to-day mind, yeah, right?
1: Yes. And I I mean I remember uh having a bit of a uh, a fight with my publisher around starting with endurance, because that's the order of the book. Endurance, you know, optimization is basically around fixing, you know, everything that's working. Don't don't just fix what's broken, fix what's working. Like make, sure. you know, optimize the way you work, your product work, your teams work. But um but yeah, the endure. Part is a bit dreary, but important, and you know there's a lot of incredible hacks that people can use to stomach that mm. part of the volatility.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think the the hard part is like we we do tr- we we seek that dopamine level in our brains constantly, so we're always trying to look for that short term reward. And I think you have a great um, kind of analogy of, of why this is happening, which is the fact that you know back in the day this is just like a human survival we're all
1: hardwired for short-term rewards in fact when the life expectancy average was 26 years old or whatever not a few hundred years ago yeah um uh that the idea of signing up for a seven to ten year journey was simply unwise um and i think we were always optimized towards just making sure we survive and and then we're Indoctrinated with this from birth, our parents reward us based on you know how we are every minute, you know, and then mm. our our teachers reward us on how we do on a test and then in an exam and then a course. And as uh, one of our early investors in Behance, um, Fred Wilson, VC in New York, liked to once say, at a, he said at one of our conferences, "You know, the two greatest addictions in life are heroin and a weekly salary." Mm-hmm. And so, when you unplug yourself from from this constant stream of reward, you're fooling yourself to think that you can just be fine with the long-term hope that it works out. That is enough to start something, that long-term vision, but it's not enough to keep yourself and your team engaged day in and day out for weeks, months, years at a
0: time. Sure, sure. Yeah, it's 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 a struggle and you do have a great, the, the thing that really stuck out to me is like this idea of shortcutting uh, rewards amongst not just for yourself, uh, but amongst your team, yeah, I struggle with this personally, and I think a lot of people that have this like Type A personality, which is the checkbox mentality, where you have a goal, you achieve it, you you know, you tick a check mark, and then you just want to move on because right. you want to just continue to achieve more things. And I guess it's somewhat. I mean, I guess talk a little bit about that. About how yeah, we can well, there's that. some
1: tricks to this, right? I mean, there are a few things I would mention. Um, one is the fact that we should merchandise the progress we're making to ourselves in order to make more progress. There's a lot of research, some of which I cover in the book, around progress begetting progress and how um, we know now that when you feel like you're making progress, you're likely to make more progress. Mm. And so that means that we should be using some of the same tools that, say, the advertising and marketing industry uses to get us to do things, to get ourselves and our teams to do things. Part of this means literally like, merchandising internally, what needs to be done, what's getting done, showing on the wall, like tasks that are completed. Everyone kind of focuses on things that are pending, but not stuff that's passed. But if you actually help the team understand, the analogy I use in the book is it's like driving cross country with your team in the backseat with the windows blacked out. And Mm. if you're not telling them where you're going, where you are, like the progress you're making, the milestones you're passing, people are going to go nuts in the backseat. But if you narrate it, if you say, hey, you know, over the bridge, okay, we're in some traffic now. Okay, now we're like smooth sailing. You know, we're going really fast. or we just passed state lines. People can tolerate the journey. And so you have to do that as the leader, you know, and that's part of the narration and the merchandising part. The other thing I would say is you do have to short circuit the reward system by making up rewards where there aren't any. Now, they can't be fake rewards. They can't be uh, not in the direction of the progress you need to make, but – They can be fun and interesting. You know, we always had fun ones in the early days of Behance, where uh, you know, for example, I told the team that I would eat meat as a vegetarian for 26 years. If we pass a certain, you know, I don't know why this was appealing to some of my (laughs) colleagues, but they thought it was really funny to try to make me uh, eat certain types of meat off of certain people's forks at our Christmas dinner if we achieve certain milestones. And it was just like one of those fun little things that we did as bets. Um, The other one I love to love to remember is we used to always type in Behance into Google and it always said, do you mean enhance? Do you mean enhance? And so we knew we were still a mistake in the eyes of Google. Mm. And uh, and in the early days, we knew that if we had enough portfolios and enough link backs and enough blog postings, that someday Google would, would acknowledge us as a legitimate search term. Gotcha. And so that was like a six month or so goal. And indeed, one day in like, I think, early 2007, you know, one of our um, one of our uh, engineers put Behance in Google and lo and behold, we were legitimate. And that was like a momentary reward, right? That didn't really have anything to do with revenue or, you know, but it was directional. And then sure. of course, in 2008, Beyonce became super popular and we lost it all over again. <laughs> but uh, you just got to keep it going.
0: Behance, Beyonce, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I think people stick to the metric of revenue numbers, but I, I like the fact that you have these other... Uh, probably from a business perspective, I imagine it was fairly, fairly. It wasn't super important in terms of you know finally getting acquired or from Adobe and stuff like that. But it's the internal motivation of the team that probably triggered the hundred percent momentum.
1: I mean, I would say that one of the dirty little secrets in the startup world is that the most you know the greatest competitive advantage of a startup team is simply sticking together long enough to figure it out. Mm. Because if you're applying. Know, fresh energy, a counterintuitive approach, new technology to an old problem in which you lack expertise. You have to simply survive long enough to outrun the incumbent, to um, to apply the knowledge you have uniquely to the space and allow for just time to yeah. pass to uh, build that expertise and, 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 and win. So it's, if it's about fortitude and patience, then culture matters and the tricks that we use to keep the team engaged and trick our own psychology into not quitting are critical.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's, there's a few things that uh, I think Naval Ravikant talks about this, where this idea of compounding, uh, whether it's relationships, uh, capital, of course, which most people refer to, and knowledge, mm-hmm. in this case, where you stick around long enough and you, right. th- that becomes your advantage in many ways
1: yeah and I remember I mean for the book, I was one of I interviewed Joe Gebbia from Airbnb who was talking about how he didn't even know what the terminology of the wholesale industry was when they were starting right. and just how woefully ignorant they were about the industry that they were aiming to disrupt yet of course, they did actually become experts, right mm. so it's not a point that you don't need to become an expert. It's just that you need to again come from unique angles applying a different counterintuitive approach and different technology and then survive long enough to build an expertise to close your gaps and then win.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. And how do you think we can train ourselves to become more long-term thinkers?
1: Yeah. No, I think it's I think it's great and I mean I would I would postulate that you cannot think that you can just become a long-term thinker because of your conviction in the long-term goal. Mm. And you can't every morning say, Oh my gosh, this is where we'll be in seven years. And so I'm going to stay engaged today right. because of the press and the headlines and the, you know, the friends that are telling you that they're making more progress than you are. I mean, every yeah. day yeah. we're doing a calculus in our heads of, if the, is this working? Is this smart? What should I do?
0: Mm.
1: And in fact, if we can be tricked into just engage being engaged with the team we're working with on a daily basis and have those short-term rewards where there aren't any, like if we actually almost um, implant them, right? Yeah. Then um, then if you look back over five years, like that's what enables you to stay engaged. I think with BNS, we had a few things going for us. Culturally, we had a team that was all there for the right reasons. Everyone wanted to kind of be involved with the company at this stage. We... Um, really cared about the creative world and about what we were trying to do and the you know we had a rallying cry around how creatives were living at their career at the mercy of circumstance and they were always being taken advantage of and never getting attribution and credit for the work that they did mm. and so that was kind of an, an, an a, a very like rallying cry for us and also it was in 2008 it was a tough year not you know it wasn't like everyone was getting poached every day we were in New York where it wasn't like a you know, a VC happy hour every Tuesday that was trying to just, you know, get in the way of people sticking together and poaching people and whatever. So a lot of the ingredients were there such that our team actually stuck together for seven years without many departures at all. In fact, until I think a few years into the uh, Adobe acquisition, our team was still all together.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Did it help that you guys were bootstrapped? in that there wasn't this VC pressure on you guys? I, I think
1: so? there was something about us owning our own outcome and our own destiny that sure. definitely helped. There were also a number of initiatives we did as a company um, around building our brand and getting closer to our customer that weren't you know, completely tolerated by investors. Like, for example, having annual conference, um, having a paper product, Writing a book for creatives on how to be more organized. yeah, you know, a lot of traditional investors would look at that and say, "Stop doing this, start focusing, and don't waste my money. But we believe that we were building a brand that meant something. Hmm. Um, we didn't want to be a technology platform. We wanted to be a company that was trying to organize the creative world. and um, and I think that was part of also what you know made us so proud and and loyal,
0: sure, to sure. the mission, probably makes you, a great investor in that, in that you have this empathetic side to you now, if you see other entrepreneurs that are trying to build a similar vision or brand or, or, yeah. or movement around that.
1: I mean, I'm a big, um, I'm a big fan of operator angels, you know, people who are actually, you know, were or are still operating and therefore have real empathy for what it takes to take any of their advice and actually put it into action. Yeah. It's hard. And, uh, and I actually think that's one of the trends we're seeing these days with early stage, financing is that a lot of these companies that are not bootstrapping altogether are raising a round from operator angels who are putting in small checks and and completing their entire round of financing so that sure. they can just have these folks as wind at their backs
0: Yep. yeah definitely um so you know you were just speaking about focus a little bit i know and i know this is something that you guys struggle with personally at your yep. hands I think a lot of entrepreneurs, they, the ideal DNA of an entrepreneur is someone that has ADHD, right? Because yep. they're always trying to find new ideas. They're, they're always inspired by new things they want to take on. Um, how do you think, how do you look at focus? Because I think you have a unique perspective on that.
1: Well, it's, you know, I'm no expert um, yeah. because I am a, you know, I, I, I have a lot of ideas. Yeah. And what I have, though, learned to do over the years is kill things quickly, Mm. Um, and I think, uh, there were certain periods in Behance where we did have a lot of things running and I really hesitated to kill things cause I was always trying to hedge us. I was always saying, well, you know, if this network doesn't work out, we have this task management tool. And if that doesn't work out, we can still be a lifestyle business and have the conference and this and that. And I, I started to realize the hard way that I was splintering our team's time. Mm. You know, everyone was spending 50% on this and then 20% on this and 30% on this. And, uh, and when I started to kill things, suddenly I realized it was like a breath of fresh air the next day. Like you just got out of a, a breakup, you know, that <laughs> you were thinking about for a year and it was a good relationship, but not a great relationship. And then suddenly sure. like, oh my gosh, like the world just opened. Um, yeah. And so that is, uh, that is what we started to realize. And I started to get a little um, interested in that sensation and be yeah. like, well, wait a second. If we feel that good after killing that, what else can we kill? So so, multiple
0: girlfriends you could break (laughs) up. It's perfect. (laughs) And so we went into
1: the Behance product and we realized, okay, you know, we have this group functionality and we have this tip exchange functionality. Oh, and we also have this like work in progress feature that people aren't really using. And yet the core KPI that's driving all of our traffic and all of our usage is just posting projects and putting them in portfolio. Let's kill groups. And what do you know? Like five days later, the traffic goes up across building projects in the editor. Mm. And it's like, oh, well, let's kill tip exchange. And then boom, like before you know it, projects are being created more, even more. Sure. And so it's like, well, wait a second. Like if we just like really simplify this and just try to kill as much as possible. And so that became a new instinct for me. And actually now I will see a lot of other products or companies that I'm invested in. And I will uh, challenge the founder on, you know, what he or she can kill or leave out of the prototype, you know, I always try to say that, you know, your minimum viable product um, is you're, you're, you're trying to optimize for a set of problems. You're actually optimizing so that people will love your product so much that they say, please add this in, please mm. add that in. And so if, if, if it's things like that, that you want people to come requesting, leave them out. But if it's something that you have to have in there for people to be successful and even want more in the first place, that's part of your MVP, right? And so that's kind of been the the the, the framework, so to speak, that I now apply to new products.
0: Yeah, I, I think you mentioned also in the book that the idea of novelty versus utility—you you do want to optimize for novelty in that it can certainly help you guys get off the ground.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's different. You know, I would say optimize for novelty. Um, over-utility in some products because that's how, like when people were early adopting Slack, they were doing it because of the animated GIFs and like people being in fun rooms, like talking to one another, even though they were using other tools like HipChat for actual work. Mm -hmm. And then Slack was able to kind of take over our mindshare. I would also say that when it comes to community products, optimize for utility over community. That's another mistake that I see is that Mm -hmm. uh, teams will build a community for a group of people and they will fail to realize that people ultimately come together first for utility i mean with behance people were ultimately coming for a free portfolio right and just to power their portfolio and get jobs in a more efficient way and then while they were there they were like oh i can follow people oh and now i'm following people i can see what they're doing every day and then they suddenly got into the community but that was sort of a second order benefit
0: sure yeah that totally makes sense um yeah, I mean, focus, it, it seems like that's really what saved Behance and allowed you guys the breathing room to really take off. How do you think about, because this, this is something I always struggle with because you see entrepreneurs, like a good example is your Frank Garrett Camp, who, from a high-level perspective, was working on StumbleUpon, I think, back in the day, bought it back, and he just had all these different side projects on the side. He wasn't really that focused, and it turned out that, that lack of focus right. is what helped him get Uber, and it's what everyone knows of him. But now. if you
1: think about it, you know, Garrett was never the CEO of Uber, mm, and so um, strategies. Yeah, and one thing okay. I've always admired about Garrett is that he is very good at not only empowering others, but also like making sure that they are as big, if not bigger, owners than he is, because he knows that it has to be someone else's idea for it to truly, truly win. Sure. And so when he was kind of sharing with me this side project that he was working on um, for Uber. While he was running stumble upon and uh, and we were doing a, a partnership together between Stumble-upon and behance. you know, there was part of me that was like, "Dude, you just bought your company back and you know, and you're supposed to be focused and now you're like brewing this side idea, yeah, but to his credit, he was actively engaging advisors like travis and 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 people like Ryan to kind of run it come in and run it for him sure um and uh, and then, of course, it became their company um so I think that you know I learned from that, which is that if you when you have an idea, whether it's an idea that you want enacted by your team or another team, you really have to kind of let go and, mm-hmm. uh, and also be extraordinarily generous when it comes to equity and structure of ownership, gotcha. because at the end of the day, it's not, it, you know, it's ideas don't mean anything. It's execution that
0: rules the day. Sure. Sure. So you think there, there are ways to, I guess, have a little bit of both where you can, I don't know if it's called hedging, but it's, it's to have more opportunities for yourself, but you can delegate yeah. in some ways. And I well. just,
1: I mean, I always think about, I try to stay, take myself out of it. And I'm like, what does it take for this idea to win? Mm. You know, let's like, let's really be practical here. It's going to take someone waking up and going to bed every day thinking about this idea. Sure. It's going to take st- tremendous amounts of sacrifice. It's going to take someone who overcomes that volatility of the messy middle and somehow sticks together long enough to figure it out with the team. Mm-hmm. Okay, what are the preconditions for that to actually happen? They have to feel like they are the owner, you know, and they have to be able to liberally give their team more ownership. And, the, you know, just you start to play that out. And then you realize that you can't like synthetically just pr- make that happen. And I think that's why a lot of incubators fail, I mean, when's the last time we saw a multi-billion dollar company come out of an agency, for example, that was trying to spin up three or four companies on the side while they're serving clients? Sure. Like, you just don't see that. It's like, that's that's a, that's a super rare if never. Yeah. Uh, and that's probably the reason why.
0: Yeah. The only thing, the only example I can think of is like Rocket Internet, where, where I heard they give like 5% to like MBA students, which I don't even know. And clearly it seems like.
1: But they're—I mean—they're I mean, they're just copying something. They're just, glo- yeah, yeah. They're just literally maybe. Copying. I mean, maybe that is the exception. If it's a—if it's a factory that basically takes something and copies it pixel for pixel, sure, you Pours know, money into it, um, and you know, not to, not my jam. Yeah, um, but uh, but without passing judgment, you know, maybe there's maybe there are some ex- exceptions. Sure,
0: sure. Um. So an entrepreneur, you know, is is trying to figure out what to focus on, what to delete. You know, Seth Godin has this good book called The, called the Dip where he yep. talks about this idea of you know, really trying to figure out the dilemma of whether you should quit something or whether you should pursue. Are there frameworks or questions that an entrepreneur should ask themselves that will help them make that decision?
1: Yeah. I mean, I get that question a lot from entrepreneurs that I know or, uh, or advise. And, um, and uh, my answer is always very simple. When you started this venture, when you took the risk to leave your job, to do something bold, and, 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 but without a lot of knowledge at that moment, right? Yeah. I mean, you're just starting. You had a lot of conviction that this was the way the world was going to be, and that's what made you embark on this journey. Now that you have met customers and done research and been in the trenches and tested product and whatever else, if you have more conviction – if you have less conviction than you had when you started – after all this knowledge you now have if you have less conviction quit like that's there's no reason to now that you have knowledge and all the in- experiences you've been outfitted with to stick with it i mean you know you know if you would, if you knew then what you knew now and you would never have done this like then why the hell are you doing it right sure. life is short however if all of these research experiences and customer experiences and feedback and what have you you know outfits you with more conviction in the end state If you're like, I believe this more than ever before, however, I am struggling, my team is disbanding, you know, I'm, you know, then you're just, it's par for the course. You're in the messy middle. You're just managing the volatility and stick with it. Like that's your competitive advantage at this point is probably to stick with it long enough to figure it out as we were talking about earlier. And so to me, it's a measure of conviction. It's an honest appraisal of now knowing everything I know, would I have done this?
0: Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's hard for entrepreneurs to admit that because of this, as you mentioned as well, yeah. the sunk cost fallacy, where right. especially if you've worked on it for multiple years.
1: It's a sunk cost fallacy, and it's also this thing we're embedded with from birth of like don't quit you know winners never quit type of mantras uh, which is wrong i mean on the contrary everything that we know about rapid iteration and prototyping is all about quitting it's like try yeah. this and then if that doesn't work you know quit essentially and then try another tr- pay another another way i mean we you know what pivots can do for companies they're essentially sure. quitting what they intended to do to do something different so it's a i think it's a false false narrative
0: yeah the good thing about these new age parents giving thirteenth place trophies is that you know <laughs> right. maybe maybe people will give up a little bit more there before before everything happens. Yeah, um, gotcha. So, uh, so the endurance seems to be like the major thing that a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with. Um, so, optimization is is also another one. Talk to us a little bit about some of the main highlights of what you've seen that has made the most impact for entrepreneurs you've advised or invested in.
1: Yeah, well, I think that listen we we won't talk about optimizing products because that's an, that's a known thing like you just always have to be trying to tweak things and any part of your product that's working incredibly well like make it better that's what's going to differentiate you in the long run but what's less discussed is how that applies to teams so we typically have this idea that if anything that we're doing is working as a team if you're meeting every Tuesday morning and you're using a certain stand up you know tool and whatever else then don't tinker with it if it's working. Just focus on putting out the fires and fixing the things that are broken. Mm-hmm. But that's not how you build a high performing team, and that's not how you build a high performing product. What you have to do is find the things that your team is uniquely great at, and then focus on iterating those things. Uh, focus on tweaking them. You know, let's try to make that meeting shorter every Tuesday and either adopt or revert to the previous version. Oh, we're so good at like using, um, you know, remote technology to work as a team. Let's actually try a new tool and see if that makes us even better. Um, I mean, those are the types of things that make exceptional teams in my view. And the teams that I really admire most actually invest not only in the product that they're building, but also how they're working. Mm. And every year we'll have a few objectives, you know, for how they wanna work better.
0: Sure. Sure. Are there particular, um, uh, I guess like frameworks that you guys use to decide which area that you guys should really try to optimize for depending on what, what, you know, what you guys are working on?
1: Well, I think, um, I think it's, I think it's, uh, I like to say never outsource your competitive advantage. Um, but consider outsourcing everything else. Sure. Uh, If you're a direct-to-consumer brand, like don't build your own e-commerce platform. Um, However, if you are a uh, direct-to-consumer brand, like definitely do your own design if you believe that it's the design of your brand that will ultimately differentiate you in the market. Mm. Um, And so you should be optimizing the hell out of everything that you're doing that you think is truly differentiating you in the market and the things that are not you should just you know try not to do because it's not a good use of your time. Yeah. And uh, I think that's a you know that takes learning, you know sometimes learning the hard way for 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 founders and teams because our inclination is to keep everything in our control and and do everything ourselves. Sure. Um and I I certainly made that mistake a number of times.
0: Yeah, and you you talk about the idea of how the the real main sustainable competitive advantage that someone can have is the self-awareness yes like self-awareness of of. an
1: individual level i I believe that that's true because what i've seen most successes corrupt because of a lack of self-awareness you know a lot of brands that start getting traction a lot of products that start getting usage you just start to believe well that means i figured it out and so um and so everyone else must be wrong i must be right and that's that fallacy I was talking about in the beginning, that when everything's going great in the messy middle, you're at the peak as opposed to the trough, we falsely attribute the things that we did to the things that work. Mm. I mean, that's a good example where we suddenly say, hey, you know, I'm on top of the world now. And, um, you know, and oh, and so if I have a rough culture at my company, it must be good for us. Sure. You know, I think when we look at Uber, we see a playbook that kind of worked for the start that didn't work for the middle and didn't work for the finish. And, uh, and I think one of the greatest insights a, a leader can have is that the playbook that you know, worked may be the wrong playbook for the going forward plan. Yeah. And you have to be willing to shed it um, and, uh, and go through a metamorphosis of your own way of leading your own role even and the people around you. Uh, there is a, a, a woman who I, uh, is a good friend who is a, a leader of a pretty big company in New York who was telling me that she was on her third management team. And I was like, what do you mean by that? And she's like, listen. You know, we just kind of, some of us outgrew our roles once and then again, a number of us grew out of our roles twice. And then now I'm on like the third round of the type of people that we need to be good stewards of this business. And, um, and she's also always looking at herself saying, I feel like I've been able to change with like coaching and all the work that I'm doing on myself. But if someday I feel like I'm no longer the right leader for this.
0: I also need to change. How do you know? This is actually a question that I I always ask myself is, is how do you know when you should replace yourself as a leader?
1: Yeah. Well, I think you somehow, it's hard to objectively look at your performance, right? Yeah. And so partly is not getting a a board of sicko but rather a board of folks who like really tell you what they see. I think it's also having peers who um, you benchmark yourself with you know, I think that a uh, competition is a amazing force for action. When you see and you, you pace yourself with others who you really respect, and then you start to see that they're outpacing you, mm-hmm. you start to wonder, well, what am I doing wrong? Um, and maybe that coupled with your board, coupled with a lot of self-awareness around when you're out of your, at, when you're not only like, you know, out of your out of your, um, off the rails of, or out of your path or whatever, but also that you don't feel like you're learning as, as, as fast as you need to, yeah. then you have to start asking yourself why. Um, and some some leaders rise to the occasion and others say, listen, I don't actually think I'm the best leader for this
0: company at this stage. Right. And sometimes that can be one of the best decisions. It can. It's can It's make. great.
1: You know, at the end of the day, you're serving your people, you're serving your customers. And, you know, if you can take your ego out of it, yeah, you know, it's a very powerful thing.
0: Yeah, it's tough for a lot of entrepreneurs to leave that baby that they had when they first started, for sure. It is.
1: It is. And, yeah, you know, I guess, though, that's the difference. Why Why are there so few companies that ultimately succeed? I don't just think it's because the odds are bad. I, mean, I think it's because of these sort of things. You know, yeah. you're right. Like most people can't ever look at themselves in the mirror and say, I don't know if I'm the right leader anymore before they're told, before it's too late. Mm. And um, maybe that is one of the big differences in the outcomes and the percentages.
0: Yeah. Do you think it helps? Because um, I know one of the things you look for as an, as an investor is not necessarily passion, but just this actual need for, for a problem yeah. that the entrepreneur is solving. I don't know how passionate Garrett was in terms of finding taxis. And yeah. how, I guess maybe it was around connecting people in that way. Um, well, I think it's a
1: good... You know, it's a good question. And as an investor, I think a lot about this because yeah. I think that a lot of investors make a mistake of investing people in, in people just because they're passionate about a solution to a problem, as opposed to people who are empathetic with the people suffering the problem. Right. When you're super passionate and then you get a team together and you hide behind screens and then you ship something a year or two later and you wonder why it's 30 degrees off of what customers actually need and you miss that elusive product market fit, that's because you are passionate as opposed to empathetic with the customer.
0: Mm.
1: One thing I admire about a lot of folks, Garrett included, is that it's really about like an obsession with the problem and the people involved with it. You know, for him, it was just like, gosh, you know, it's so hard to get around, and you know, and getting like a black car from like a you know, if you're working at a bank or getting a, a car to pick you up when you're at a conference in a foreign city, it's just like, you know, and and then his like empathy of like whether that was a widespread problem and, you know, was, you know, I think what really led to him getting getting into it.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. Well, the the last part of the book, of course, is is uh, the last mile or the, the final mile. Yep. And um, one of the things that really struck out to me is is this idea that when you're young, you're always looking to trade your time for money, but it's the reverse when you're older, uh, but you still have to go through a lot of hard shit, even if you, <laughs> you can't just always put money into the stuff that is has a lot of obstacles to it. Talk to us a little bit about that and how that can help build endurance.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, The Final Mile um, was... Uh, I really challenged myself to write that part of the book, um, despite how hard it was to conjure up conversations with people about it. I mean, there's a lot of weird psychological stuff that happens before the end of anything. Yeah. Um, before... You launch a product, you know, at the end of developing, there's a lot of churn that happens. People suddenly start to question decisions that they've made over many months of scrutiny. Mm. When you sell a business, people, some people feel like they don't deserve their own success and psychologically self-sabotage, even subconsciously, because they just, you know, they don't, they're not comfortable with how their life is about to change. And I saw that personally, you know, around me. In my own experience, and I've seen it, you know, in other in other founders as well. And um, and I also think there's this aspect of then our identity becomes wrapped up in our work. You know, when you have something that you've been successful in, whether it's a, a writer or a business person or an actor or whatever else, and you suddenly see yourself as part of that success, it defines you. Sure. It actually, in some ways, becomes a weird prison for any other creative thing or risk you want to take, because suddenly, like everyone always says, like an author's second book sucks because you know they're sort of defined by their first. Mm. And um, a lot of you know one-hit wonders in the music industry. You wonder why that happens. Is it because? The open space and the um, self confidence and the you know creative freedom that they had that yielded their first success and also the strife by the way the struggle that yielded their first success has now all disappeared right and then they're suddenly told to go into a studio and think of something and come up with their next hit sure and it's like well wait all the kindling I had is gone right um, so in the final mile like these are all the types of things that I've seen people struggle with and I wanted to help people you know navigate around it I, I also. Included and in there are some things I'm trying to learn, like the notion of um, you know trading. You do you know I I put talked about the time for money and the money for time equation. You know early days in the business it was 24 seven. I had no kids. I had no anything else in my life that yeah. I wanted to allocate time to. You know now it's completely different and you know, if I'm offered to do a book talk somewhere and get paid for it, but then it's like, a, you know, but I would actually pay for more time just to be with my kids. And, you know, it just was striking to me, like it's how some of those equations change, which is in some ways a luxury problem, but it's also, you know, as anyone ages, they start to you know think about time differently.
0: Yeah. And your time in terms of per minute, per, per hour, it also starts to increase as you start to become more successful because you have more leverage now. So yeah, it's definitely a, a tough Uh,
1: And I also know some people who are really successful and I I think they probably have more money than they'll ever need, but for whatever reason, can't say no to opportunity. Mm. You know, they'll leave their family and and they'll skip anything with friends or whatever to make the incremental, you know, dollar or the incremental, incremental increment of fame. And, you know, I sometimes wonder like to what end. And, you know, I think that that's the type of thing that, Again, it comes back to like your rack, your, your identity. Um, the uh, there was one conference we had, um, for 99U where a speaker was talking about, um, you know, are you your Twitter bio? And people were like, oh, very funny, you know, are you your resume? And people were like, well, no, not really, you know, the audience. And he said, you know, some in a very dramatic tone, like, but are you your work? And it's an audience of creatives, and they're like, well, yeah, my work is definitely like me, you know? And his point was, is that's dangerous.
0: Hmm. Is it dangerous to the point where, because I often know the best creatives tend to have that mentality. Yeah, they this. do. So is there like, it's catch I mean, 22 in that way?
1: You know, first of all, as soon as we intertwine our identity in our work, then um, what if we want to do new work? What does that mean? You know, And also what if our work gets sold? Or what if our work is, suddenly not valued by anyone i mean does that suddenly mean that we should be less valued Mm. and um and also when it comes to building a life and having a family and everything else if you are your work then you know how does that all intertwine so i think there's some healthy separation that we have to find um, in order to ironically free us to do greater work as well as enjoy our lives
0: absolutely absolutely well, Scott, I know we're uh, we're tight on time here, but uh, I want to end the audience off here. We usually end off with one actionable, super small, actionable step, uh, action that they can take to go from zero to one, to get that one step further to starting their business, to going after that dream job they want. What is one small piece of actionable yeah. step they can take after listening to this?
1: I guess I would encourage everyone... To um, to share your ideas liberally, and um, and what I mean by that is, you know, we oftentimes keep things within us because they're not ready for prime time, mm-hmm. or we're worried that someone's going to steal them, which is silly. Because if someone can so easily steal an idea by hearing it, then it wasn't a good idea to begin with, and it certainly wasn't scalable and protectable. But also, you know, sharing ideas liberally unlocks the amount of accountability and cross pollination and insight from your community. That to me is all the difference between ideas happening and never happening. Mm. And when you, when you share something with a lot of people, just magic starts to happen. Dots start to be connected. People start to give you absolutely indispensable pieces of feedback that make all the difference for you. And also it just starts to create like a personal drive. Suddenly you're like, oh my goodness, you know, people now know I'm working on this. I've got a ship. And I think that's you know that's 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 all the difference.
0: Yeah, and you're like you're already one step further to yeah. building that community that you want. 100. So I
1: still send around ideas to people internally where I work and externally, and I just because the more I get it out there, I just find a, a very very strong correlation with their chance of seeing the light of day.
0: Beautiful. All right, Scott. Thanks so much. For thanks for having out. me. Thanks Absolutely. so much for tuning in, and uh, we'll see you next week. Cool. cool. Beautiful, beautiful.
1: That was great. Yeah, thanks for yeah, the great questions. Was, you're good. Like,
0: thanks for making it all the way to the end of the show hope you really enjoyed our guest today and that you took one thing valuable from our conversation if you haven't already i would love it if you could leave a quick rating or review on whichever network you're listening to the show and share this episode with one friend if you found it valuable and if it's something that a friend a family member or just someone that you care about could find little bit of insight from what you learned today. All right. Ciao.